Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Derek Chauvin, the police officer that murdered George Floyd, sparking a global uprising, was sentenced to 22 years imprisonment for second-degree murder. Neither Chauvin's conviction nor his sentencing propelled the Black Lives Matter movement forward. Black men and women across the United States continue to experience police brutality, including murder. So where to for the movement? Joining me on today's program is Robin Wansley-Warbler, a unionist and Black Lives Matter activist in Minneapolis. She starts this interview by introducing herself. I'm Robin Wansley Wallaby. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm a labor organizer with our statewide teachers union, um, uh, active, longtime socialist activist in uh, Twin Cities, um, and currently running um, as a democratic socialist for our uh, Minneapolis City Council elections this year, um, but have been, you know, part of many of our frontline actions, you know, responding to uh, police violence in our, our you know, communities, um, being part of our workers' rights struggles, you know, making Minneapolis the first city to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour. And yeah, I've just been, you know, um, on the front lines with my communities fighting for substantial changes to our racial and economic disparities. Well, the trial of Derek Chauvin, it's ended. He was found guilty. He was sentenced to 21 years. Minneapolis, your city, the city in which his death, the, the death of George Floyd happened, or his murder, rather. Tell me, how were both he, uh, the conviction of Derek Chauvin and the sentencing, how were they received by folks in Minneapolis? Um, you know... There's been multiple actions since then and since, you know, the conviction of Chauvin and then the sentencing where I think folks have mixed feelings, you know, the fact that Chauvin is only one out of the hundreds of other, you know, Chauvin type killer cops that currently still, you know, exist within our police department that's still patrolling our streets. And it took for just one of them a whole global uprising to even get a conviction. And, you know, we know there there are so many other victims um, in our cities who've been also publicly executed, who've had their murders, you know, captured on camera that have not received the type of, you know, justice in the traditional sense of of accountability of sentencing and convictions. Um, So in, in one breath, it's like, okay, we got one concession, you know, from our state to put one, you know, of these killer cops away. But also in retrospect, like we have nothing to show for, you know, our uprising um, outside of Chauvin's conviction. You know, we've had over four murders of black men um, either in Minneapolis or in the cities um, surrounding Minneapolis. Um, we've had, you know, over four killings of black men by police officers um, and still no repercussions immediately for those cases. Um, and what we've seen is just a heavy uh, militarized response to all the protests now of, of police-related murders. You know, they deploy the National Guards out automatically uh, when we mourn in the streets, um, when we gather around police stations. 
Um, you know, we've seen our democratic rights be completely overrided and suppressed, you know, in these mass and targeted arrests. You know, they've abused journalists, they've censored um, activists on the ground from putting out, you know, and documenting the abuses that they're experiencing at the hands of cops. So I, again, it's, it's very mixed emotions to say, you know, look what it took just to get one conviction, one concession from, you know, our state for one killer cop. And there's so many more that have been permitted to stay in our streets. And also we have a whole national movement um, and locally where Biden, where our democratic leaders here in Minnesota at you know the statewide municipal level, they're giving hundreds of millions of dollars back to the very cops who have records of misconduct, who've killed people in our communities. We're giving them money to stay on the payroll, to patrol and police our communities and not provide safety, but continue to produce, you know, the brutalities that resulted in in, you know, George Floyd's death. So Lots of mixed emotions, and I think uh, within all of it, oh, the commitment of you know movement leaders and working class people on the ground to keep fighting for justice for every single um, family member, for every uh, single victim who we've lost to police violence in Minneapolis. Well, I mean, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement. You said these were your words, you know, that the, the movement has not much to show, although the conviction um, uh, uh, of Derek Siobhan is one thing that BLM has to show. Um, it, it has been interesting watching, and I guess my next question is where to from here for the Black Lives Matter movement. But, you know, I think it's important to talk about some of the displays of anger that didn't necessarily translate into strategy or a movement for something more. Things like um, pulling statues down, torching police stations, though very powerful symbols of um of white supremacy or a response or reaction to white supremacy still didn't translate into much altered policing or much altered situation for race and racism. You mentioned that um, black men and women continue to be murdered by police. Well, what's your view? Where to now for that movement? Um, I think, you know, what has felt to be the case this past year, it's almost a retreat. You know, this time last year, there was this major uprising. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, it, it, bold demands were put out in, in front of like the world, in front of our public, you know, in front of the public you, and, and really embracing demands of like, what would it look like to have a drastically different public safety system that didn't rely on policing, you know, with demands around defund um, and abolish the police. And I will say, you know, more than 30 cities across the U.S. have, um, you know, moved forward with um, efforts to reallocate funding from their police departments into other, you know, public safety or public health, um, you know, initiatives and programs. Um, so there was some of those material gains across the cities. I'm, I'm in the U.S., um, but there has been a complete, I would say, counter movement that we're experiencing um, one year later where, you know, and this is largely like the ruling class because I'm a socialist, you know, the ruling class protecting its interests, like the, the uprising 
caught them completely off guard. You know, working class people are literally, you know, seizing um, capital, capitalist, you know, interests and assets. Like you said, the burning of private property, um, you know, the taking of private property. Um, and this is really private. I mean, like, we pay the taxes on all these things, but nevertheless, like, you know, the fact that working class people um, forced police as well as businesses to be in the position of, of, of retreat, where literally that you were not in control at that moment as, as a ruling class, you know, uh, uh, ruling class, you know, actor, so to say, or power broker. And they have learned, they've taken lessons from this of like, you will never catch us off guard we're going to make sure we pull all of our political, you know, brokers, especially on the Democratic Party side, you know, around this messaging of public safety, but very much reinforcing that police need to be at the core of uh, whatever we do. We need to be backing them. And we saw that play out in the presidential race. You know, Biden made it very clear that, you know, yes, we need to support efforts to address public safety. But that also means we need to back our police officers. And across his campaign trail, he made it very clear, like he will want to allocate hundreds of millions of dollars. I think the figure amount he proposed around George Floyd's murder was around 300 million that he will want to allocate to cities across the U.S. to, you know, counteract the demands around defunding the police. He wants to make sure those departments were fully funded. And he's, you know, may do on those promises. You know, right now, Minneapolis has been selected as one of the uh, cities that will be receiving federal money to essentially, you know, allocate resources to our departments under this false guise that we've defunded the, the police department is absolutely not. We have not defunded anything. So I, I would say, you know, we are on in a space of retreat right now. And you do lay out the case of like, there wasn't a coherent, you know, organizational force with like a, a clear analysis of, you know, yes, the role that police play, but also how they how they are enforcers of the ruling elite, the, the big business communities that dominate all of our cities and dominate solely with the goal of preserving their profits, you know, serving their state um, shareholders, making sure that their bottom lines is protected. Clearing the pandemic, all of us could die and be suffering, suffering and struggling as long as they got a chance to get bailed out through federal or municipal, you know, government bailout packages um, and making sure that their businesses were preserved at the end of the day, all of us could, you know, fall to the wayside and police play a very crucial part in making sure that we, when we're upset about those conditions, you know, don't rise up and hurt them. <laughs> so I, it is a weird position where I think those on the left, those who were at, the forefront of the uprising last year, we're on the defense, especially here in Minneapolis within our local elections. You know, there's 13 um, city council races and there is a candidate running in every single race that has aligned themselves with um, a coalition um, that's led by our mayor, by Operation Safety Now, by our uh, police department. That's all about making sure we uh, commit to fully funding the police, making sure that we increase the number of cops that's actually on our streets. And that is seen as like a solution to uh, the, the public safety crisis that we have right now. You know, they're using talking points around gun violence to say we need more cops ever. We need to be backing them. 
Um, you know, they've done so much for us and we need them in this time of like rising crime. And, and, and we shouldn't abandon all these demands that were raised justifiably during, you know, the uprising. So I think the next steps is really for us, as I mentioned, you know, this time last year, we really need to gather, and this is some of the role um, that my campaign is playing in, in relation to some of the coalitions that were part of the uprising, the demands around defund, was really getting a sense of what are our political commitments right now? And also making a very um, bold policy package that's that's aligned with those political commitment, uh, political commitments and our political analysis of how big business dominates our, our communities and the role that policing plays in it. We need to make sure that we are spelling out what is it that we envision in our local new department of public safety. We need to make sure we're emphasizing that this means we need to drastically alter what our public safety workforce looks like. We need to really redefine what it means to be a quality public safety worker and expand the type of crises that we um, allow our public safety workers to respond to. So that means we get to bring in social workers, healthcare workers. Mind you, these folks need to also be committed to anti-racism because we know social workers can also do, you know, policing and narc stuff. So we need to really be very um, on the offense of, of building a broader movement around a clear vision um, with policy demands of what a public safety department and a public safety worker needs to be fulfilling that we know the police currently do not. And that is not defined right now in Minneapolis. And the opposition is doing it for us. They're saying, you know, the folks who sided with the uprising, those folks are crazy. It's, and, and look, it's lawlessness, rising crime. They completely dismiss the fact that we're in an economic recession because of COVID. They're saying, you know, folks are committing crimes because of defund and the police are like not in our streets. And we know that's not clear, but opposition is taking up political space right now. And by us not building a broad mass movement um, and, and clear coalition around these, this a coherent vision with a policy platform that really gets at the core of, of inequities in our communities that we constantly meet with police, then we're constantly gonna be on the retreat. And it's so necessary that we take moments like this election, like our Yes for Minneapolis campaign, um, like the calls for you know community control over the police to really build a coherent political commitment and policy platform that really undermines you know the the false messaging that our opposition is is successfully you know organizing people around right now. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. We're speaking with Robin Wonsley Warbler, a unionist and Black Lives Matter activist in Minneapolis. We're discussing the conviction and sentencing of Derek Chauvin, the murderer of George Floyd. You're, you're, I mean, there was so much in what you said. I'm going to try. <laughs> no, all good. Going to try draw out some of those threads. Um, so you're you're a union organizer. You talked about that in your introduction. Um, I guess I'm interested to know what is the mood amongst workers, not just in relation to BLM, but also what you talked about the economic crisis arising from from COVID. But also, I mean, in in relation to policing, let's take it away from BLM for a minute. Just the issue of policing. 
I would have thought that there was a natural alliance between the organised workers' movement and BLM because the use of police to restrain organised labour, there would be a a union interest in in mollifying that as well, surely. Uh, Has a union movement been able to draw that connection? Absolutely not. They're also on the retreat. And I say this very uh, boldly and using some clear uh, examples. Um, You know, during Chauvin's conviction, um, the way that the state prepared for that was deploying 3,000 um, National Guards into the Twin Cities and into Brooklyn Center when Dante Wright was murdered as well. So we literally had National Guards with military grave weapons in front of our playgrounds, in front of our schools, in front of your neighboring, you know, Chipotle. Um, and wow, so they also had staging areas. So they'll be in your Target parking lot. Again, they'll be in, you know, your Wendy's parking lot, like your fast food and retail areas. But one of our uh, labor federations, they have union halls. Our St. Paul uh, Regional Labor Federation actually gave permission without their members knowing. Um, they gave permission for the National Guard to stage there. And mind you, these National Guards are not just like chilling on the street with these weapons. They're actively suppressing protesters at that time in George Floyd Square. Um, also in Brooklyn Center, where again, there's been tons of documentations of like the brutality that not only the the protesters, but even residents who lived across the street from the Brooklyn Center Police Department that they experienced, you know, nightly tear gas, flash grenades being, you know, pulled from their homes and arrested, placed into solitary confinement, like all sorts of just messed up, you know, abuse, abusive practices. This is what the National Guard was doing in response to the police killing another black man. Um, so in light of that happening, our union, you know, leaders felt that it was appropriate that the National Guard should have a space to chill, um, in between doing these, you know, and, and pouring these horrible and horrific acts onto working class people in Brooklyn Center and in Minneapolis. When workers found out about it, a group of workers and labor leaders, they went to the labor halls and like called out the labor leaders who permitted that and essentially got the National Guard to leave. Very historic, like, victory in that moment. Um, But let me tell you, this is how I knew, or how many of us knew that labor was on retreat. Our governor, Democratic governor, Governor Waltz, immediately got calls from members of our trades union who were upset that the National Guard was being asked to leave. And essentially, um, our governor made a statement damning you know, the union leaders who call for the expulsion of the National Guards and basically said, you know, these are working class people. They, they you know, they provide the, the utmost, you know, important service to our communities. How dare any union member or leader ask them to leave our communities? Again, ignoring the fact that you deployed these folks all with the goal of protecting private property and not addressing the core fact that the reason why your private property is at threat is because you allow police officers to kill people at will and at their discretion time and time again, and largely black and brown and indigenous people. We're going to ignore that. So not only did the governor and then union leaders unite, they also aligned themselves with the right-wing Republican Party in our Senate and actually passed. These folks, they've been able to pass not one public safety, you know, reform bill at all or anything, but they got together and passed a resolution 
in a very timely fashion, basically condemning any labor groups from expelling or calling out national guards. So listen, this was led by union. And we've seen since that at a municipal level, I was part of an event, you know, a couple of weeks ago where our labor leaders are endorsing candidates who have actively supported collusive, like collusive activities of, again, I mentioned earlier, you know, we have alliances that's being built with external groups that are running campaigns to fully fund the police, to not really provide any type of, you know, uh, clear and substantial policy reforms around public safety. Like our union members are literally endorsed, have endorsed the mayor, Mayor Jacob Fry, who has been working at 120% to block any type of like minor change around public safety, has committed his stuff this entire year to getting support and funding behind the chief. And he's doing some scandalous stuff to do this, giving money, um, COVID relief funds that could be going to keeping people housed. He's giving that money to community groups to go and basically double police folks in their communities, especially uh, protesters, to use COVID relief funds to actually get community members to even shut down George Floyd Square, you know, one of the historic sites um, and few autonomous zones that we have in the country that had been the last remnant of our uprising, a reminder of, you know, you will not get to ignore the power of working class people and their fight for real liberation. Like that's what George Floyd Square was a reminder of. Our mayor got money to get working class people to shut that down. And our unions have not called this out. They've been in retreat, in full retreat. And the ones who participated, you know, in the National Guard action, We've even had labor leaders. One of them was a, a, a leader within our nurses union. He's been blacklisted. He was um, removed from his um, board position for doing that. So it set a, a dangerous precedent now that union members are actually targeting labor leaders who are actively joining, you know, the front lines of, of, of movements on the ground that's, that's really rooted in racial justice, that's calling out capitalism at its core and, and are saying, you know, what is needed to really confront um, <laughs> these racial inequities and injustices, they're being blacklisted and isolated within their own unions. So we've seen a retreat, definitely. And we've seen a dangerous alignment of in our presidents with our union members to side with far right forces that's talking about preserving the status quo policing that essentially just, again, once again, normalize that it's all right if, you know, we have police, you know, kill black and brown people, if that means that our target is protected at the end of the day. Gosh, there was, again, so much in all of that. It's uh, it's almost like what you're calling for, and correct me if I've interpreted you incorrectly, but almost like uh, rank and file workers need to organize independently of their union leadership in order to wrangle back the unions and the political direction of their unions from these union misleaders. That has always been the case. You know, union bureaucrats and leaderships are uh, very much entrenched with institutions, especially the Democratic Party. They've been co-opted to back the Democratic Party agenda and the Democratic Party agenda is the big business agenda, essentially. You know, they're placating to the Wall Streets of all of our cities, you know, making sure that people's profits and their property is protected at all costs. And the unions, time and time again, you know, in their political capital to serve in those interests. And it means betraying 
the interests of the very members that they represent. It means also betraying the interests of working class people as a whole, especially when you're talking about racial justice. And it's definitely always been a case that, you know, there has to be an independent uh, fracture um, or faction um, it, it's of working class people, and especially rank and file members. You know, we saw that with the Chicago Teachers Union. It took a small group of, you know, largely black and brown women, women teachers, um, to form a strong caucus to take back, you know, their union from the, the traditional, you know, bureaucrats. And look, they're one of the most powerful, you know, working class vehicles for change, especially around racial justice. Like that is at the core of everything that they do. But it took that independent organizing. Robin, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Was there anything you wanted to add? When you're building movements for change, and, and I think of the original abolitionist struggles, you know, we the folks who were saying abolish slavery in the 1800s, they got met with the same type of demands of like, that's too radical, maybe not. And the core cadre of abolitionists who's like, no, we're not going to, you know, make a concession of keeping some people enslaved or like, no, it needs to go all together. And knowing that that movement had pendulum swings, like we're experiencing where you are at, you know, the far left end where it's like, yes, we got working class people behind us. We're like strong. And then you have other places prior, like the civil war, where it's like, literally people are willing to die and like go all in to preserve the status quo. But at the end of it, knowing that, you know, the change, the movement prevailed and knowing that we are in a particular phase of this movement where while it's shitty, it's messy, like the people on the ground are still here and committed to, you know, the change that we know needs to happen. That was Robin Wansley Warbler, a unionist and Black Lives Matter activist in Minneapolis about the conviction and sentencing of Derek Chauvin, the murderer of George Floyd. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.